Just before we start the show, I want to tell you about Wreckfest USA, an extraordinary event happening in Nashville on the 13th and 14th of September. Part festival, part conference, Wreckfest is a unique experience, long established in the UK. I've attended most of them, and I highly recommend you experience the incredible combination of content, networking, and celebration of all that's good in talent acquisition. Wreckfest is coming to America, and I've got a mega discount code for you. Go to wreckfest.com USA and use the code RF50 to get 50% off your tickets. That's wreckfest.com USA, and the discount code is RF50. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 522 of the Recruiting Future podcast. According to recent estimates, between 15 and 20% of the world's population is neurodivergent. Although our understanding of the brain has taken some massive leaps forward, a large proportion of neurodivergent people do not have a formal diagnosis. The advantages for employers with neuroinclusive cultures are significant. Not only do they open up important pools of talent, but they're also recognising that everyone's brain is different. This can enable a substantial increase in collaboration, innovation and productivity. My guest this week is Ed Thompson, founder and CEO of Optimize, and author of the new book, A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work. Ed has a vast amount of knowledge and experience to share on how to increase neuroinclusion. Hi, Ed, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Please, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? I am Ed Thompson. I am the founder and CEO of Optimize. That's optimize.com with a Z. We are the leading training company globally in neuro inclusion. We've been going since 2016. A few years into that journey, I felt compelled to share some of the energy and excitement I'd seen in in this sort of nascent, but to me very belated space of how do we include people who have different brains in the workplace? And I wanted to write a book about it. I started that journey three years ago, and that was released in April of 2023. And that book is called A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of neurodiversity at work. Well, congratulations on the book launch. Tell us a little bit more about it. What's the background to it? Why did you write it? And what's it about? Yeah, I think I think this really ties to my own story. Inevitably, you know, how, how did I get into this uh, area? Uh, my background was nothing to do with um, really people or, or diversity in the workplace. Uh, and until I went to work for a tech company in London, I was on the leadership team working for the CEO. And, and slightly to my surprise, his priorities and, and therefore my priorities were all around people. You know, how do we hire the best people? How do we hire talent fast enough? How do we make sure we really build the workplace of the future? 
that we know needs to be diverse and, and, and leverage diversity of thought and so on and so I got involved in uh, talent and sort of strategic diversity programs through that and then through some family members who are autistic and lifelong autistic self-advocates talking to me about the neurodiversity field and encouraging me to bring some of what I'd been doing to, to, to their field and that resonating with me particularly because I'd had a traumatic brain injury about five ten years before that I was still getting over um, I started to build optimize realizing that gosh if we're talking about you know talent being overlooked and marginalized and this being an opportunity both for business impact and social impact this is absolutely huge and organizations don't know anything about it and I'm going to change that so that was the kind of genesis of of optimize and I think one of the first realizations that you know I wanted to share with the world initially through the business and then ultimately through um, the book further realizations followed really as you start understanding well what is neurodiversity you realize actually this is simply the fact that we all have different brains so any interaction at work whether it's a meeting an interview a conversation with your boss whatever it is involves human neurodiversity and if we're not paying attention to that then we're not going to get the best outcomes in terms of you know belonging collaboration innovation and so on that was another major thing as we began our work we saw how often and how obviously organizations weren't necessarily hiring the best people that the best candidates were getting excluded in hiring processes i know that's going to be particularly of interest to your listeners here absolutely yeah and you know all of these things just kind of piled up and and, and somebody who's written multiple books said to me the other day there's two types of books you know there's the sort of book that you try to come up with you know maybe you're a fiction writer and you're trying to come up with your fifth book because you know you need to release another one and then there's the books that just sort of tumble out of you and because of everything I've just explained this was really very much a, a, a book that you know tumbled out of me I wanted to share all of that I wanted to share the excitement of it I wanted to explain and, and investigate why is it that we haven't been talking about this stuff as humans until the 21st century, given that human collaboration, of course, is hundreds of thousands of years old. Why are we not talking about the fact that we've got different brains? And if we do, what can that mean in terms of what you can bring to your own work and then what you can bring to your organisation? I mean, it's really important, interesting stuff. And I, I really want to kind of dig into some of the themes that you bring up in the book. But really starting with that, with what you just said there about the understanding of, of neurodiversity. And, you know, certainly over the last, I don't know, four or five years, maybe we've seen, you know, much more discussion about it. Companies really sort of, you know, diving in and, and, and working out how they can be, how they can be inclusive. So there's a building understanding around it. I mean, what are the, what are the biggest misconceptions and, and why has it taken so long for it to come to the sort of the, the, the center of conversation? Well, I find that fascinating. I'm glad you asked it. And, and as somebody who studied history uh, and actually from a family of historians, I, I really enjoyed looking at some of the history of this and, you know, the extent to which human societies have not talked about neurodiversity and, and, and where that started to change 
and the way it started to change. And of course, the way it started to change was in the medical field, where you had doctors uh, coming up with reports and theories and and terms for patients, uh, for example, dyslexia, for example, autism, uh, and, and so on. And these are all, you know, fairly recent. We're talking only really in the last, you know, 100 or so or so years, which is pretty recent when you're talking about the big sweep of, of human history. Then you have a period where, you know, these things are uh, exist as you know, medical conditions with sort of shifting diagnostic criteria. It's only in the 1990s that you have the birth of what's called the neurodiversity movement, which is neurodivergent people uh, talking about being neurodivergent in a slightly different way and starting to talk amongst themselves and then even more broadly about the idea that neurodiversity might just be uh, a natural variation in human brain wiring and actually not necessarily, you know, something that should be stigmatized in, in the way it is as simply a, a, a negative or simply as a as a disability and, and no more. Um, now, if we think, you know, why is it, why is, why are we only talking about this now? I mean, diversity and inclusion as, as, a, as, a, as a thing, if you like, DEI, whatever you want to call it, that's been around since the 60s. And you have cases of, you know, organisations being taken to, to task in the 70s and paying fines because, you know, they're not doing enough to be inclusive. But that's 20 years or so before anyone even used the word neurodiversity. So neurodiversity sort of always been playing uh, catch up. What's interesting to me is that actually, and we hear this from some smaller companies, is that I think if you were looking at diversity and inclusion cold and you've never done anything and you're a new company and obviously some companies are in that space, it makes a lot of sense actually to start with it, you know, not to do this as the, as, the, as the final piece in the puzzle, but actually say, well, look, you know, our people are our most expensive asset. What's the major tool that they're all bringing to work every day, whoever they are? whatever their ethnicity or gender and so on. Um, and how can we start being inclusive of that? And I think that's a, you know, a powerful prism then to get into other forms of difference. And, and, and it's a way that we can start talking about difference in a positive way and embracing it. And everybody can get the idea that, look, if we have different brains working on a problem, that's a good thing. I think you know, positive things can, can come from there rather than just kind of tacking it on because, gosh, you know, another thing people are talking about it. Let, let's do it just because of the the societal pressure. I think you're you're missing something in that sense. So you're basically saying that it it should be kind of important to every organize every organization and, and a central sort of part of their of their thinking. What are the dangers of ignoring it? Yeah, I I think the dangers of ignoring it are major uh, business impact you know, leading to reduced business performance, if you like, not not to sound too grand, but what I mean by that is I, I think it's pretty easy to see the dangers of ignoring this um, as, as, as major uh, elements of, you know, failing to, to meet business or, or corporate goals. And it's interesting, if you look at annual reports uh, these days, you look at what CEOs are talking about and, you know, the CEO I worked for that I mentioned was was no different. These days, CEO priorities are what used to be HR priorities. It's how do we keep people around? It's you know reducing turnover. It's attracting talent. 
it's uh, productivity, it's innovation, you know, all of those things. And all of those things really matter at the moment. They're not just kind of HR buzzwords. People are genuinely struggling to fill roles. You know, one in three, one in four corporate employees are voluntarily leaving every year. Productivity is down and innovation in a world now where the average lifespan of a company has absolutely plummeted in the last 50 or so years down to about 15 years and it's getting shorter and shorter. No, that's not just a buzzword. That's if, you know, if you're not innovating in the 21st century, you're going to be out innovated and you're going to be in trouble. And I think we can easily link ignoring neurodiversity to all of those things. You know, if you if you have a culture and an environment where a significant chunk of people feel uh, marginalized, feel uncomfortable, feel unable to share their true selves, we know there's a link to turnover there, not surprisingly. Um, we know that not surfacing some of these things is going to impact not just productivity, but also collaboration. You've got a team of different brains and we're just working the way the manager likes to work. That's not going to get the best out of ourselves. And then the same thing with innovation. If we're missing out on talent that thinks differently and we don't have a culture that allows them to be themselves and do their best work and surface their ideas in a culture of psychological safety, then we are going to reduce the likelihood of innovative outcomes. A quick message from our sponsor, Winolo. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about Winolo. That's W-O-N-O-L-O. Winolo stands for Work Now Locally. Winolo enables businesses to find quality workers for on-demand, seasonal, short-term and long-term work. Ditch the bulky paperwork and interview process and use Winolo to find quality workers fast and get work done even faster. With flexible workers and no platform fees, you can save on operating costs, meet demand and maximise earnings with ease. Winolo is available in over 100 markets, including Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York and Seattle. Get workers who are ready to work and spend less time finding them with Winolo. Go to www.winolo.com pod. That's www dot w-o-n-o-l-o dot com slash pod and take the stress out of finding workers digging into that a, a bit deeper and, and going back to something you said earlier about companies not necessarily hiring the, the the best the best people what can employers do to really you know, make sure they are hiring the best people, making neurodiversity a kind of a real proactive part of their talent strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. Chapter in the book called Boulders in the Road, which is all about this. Um, I think that the idea of kind of boulders in the road, the idea of stuff getting in the way of uh, hiring people, but it's in, it's unintentional. Uh, I think that's a, a you know a quite a good metaphor and, and particularly good for hiring processes and so you know let's start thinking about the experience of a candidate and, and we can start identifying these boulders so you know a candidate uh, goes to a careers website and they see a lot of stuff about diversity and inclusivity but they don't see anything about neurodiversity that's very very common and it's very few companies these days that will say we actively welcome 
people who think differently. So immediately we know this from our focus groups. People will think, well, they don't, they don't want, they don't get people like me. Same thing, you know, with job descriptions and so on. And then once people get to some of those interfaces, job descriptions, application forms, there can be all sorts of friction points or boulders in the road there, uh, unclear text, jargon, uh, timed application forms that are difficult to follow and, and, and eye pressure and, uh, and so on. And then, of course, applicant filtering tools uh, can easily be problematic, whether it's psychometric tests, whether it's, um, you know, software that requires candidates to take videos of themselves. Of course, you know, some people are going to enjoy that and like it. Some people aren't. Um, or whether it's recruiters saying, you know, we need everybody to um, have had no more than a three month gap uh, in their CV when we know that neurodivergent people may well have had a longer time uh, underemployed for reasons that are outside of their control. And then we get to interviews. And of course, if interviewers are interviewing without much familiarity of neurodiversity, they can punish somebody who speaks with a flatter affect. They can punish somebody who doesn't make eye contact. They can punish somebody who doesn't appear to, uh, you know, perfectly wrap up their sentences or their thoughts. Um, and, and all of these things are where, you know, talent is dropping off, right? And, and that's where, we, you know, we would teach in, in the training we do at, at Optimize um, how, how, we, how we reduce all of those things. And, and we look at this funnel, where are the gaps? How do we address the gaps? And surprise, surprise, we're able to hire people who, you know, who think differently. And expanding that out more generally, how can employers be more inclusive when it comes to a neurodivergent workforce? So what organisations can do about being more inclusive, it has to start with culture change. Most people don't know much about neurodiversity and often what people think they know is wrong. So in all of these interactions at work, again, interviews, meetings, whatever it is, Slack, chats, I mean, anything that are taking place between different brains, most of the time people aren't thinking about that. And that makes for uh, some of these boulders that we've described. It also makes for cultures where people don't feel they can be themselves, they don't feel like they can disclose uh, and so on. So we have to address that. We can address that through awareness and neurodiversity appreciation chain, uh, change training. So people start realizing that they work in a neurodiverse context. And then they start uh, learning how to bring neuroinclusive principles into their work in specific roles, whether managers, uh, recruiters, or HR, or, or so on. And as we find, as people start being more cognizant of neurodiversity around them and understanding what some of those uh, friction points and boulders might be, they often are able to pretty quickly take solutions into their own work uh, to be able to achieve neuroinclusion at scale uh, in an organisation. You talk about culture change there and with the best will in the world, that's something that takes a long time to happen. There's lots of leaders and managers who are listening to this. What advice could you give them of something that they could do right now to kind of engage the different type of thinkers that they work with? Yeah, absolutely. I, for me, it's recognizing not only the neurodiversity of, of your team, right? So however many 
folks work for you. They all have a different brain. They all have different preferences. We ask, we do a survey of them in terms of you know how they like to communicate, problem solve, uh, work, the, the times of day they like to work, and so on. Uh, the types of tasks they like to do, we're going to get different answers. And that's because they've all got different brains and, and different brain wiring. But so do you, right? And, and you are one brain within that context. And I think what managers can do is start being more cognizant of, of both of those things, that their team thinks differently, but also you know, so do they in, in, in that context. And actually starting to have conversations around these things that have nothing to do with diagnoses or quote-unquote conditions and, and so on but just start to recognize that that everything you're doing as as a team you're bringing your own brain you're bringing your own preferences as a result and, and so is everybody else so the types of things you could do let's say around communication um, you could do this to your team or you could do this to a new team member you could say look here's how I like to communicate. Here's how I like to give instructions. Here's how I like to give feedback. Does that work for you? How do you want me to give instructions? What is going to work best for you? And not to assume that how you like to do it is, is how they like to do it. There's an interviewee I spoke to for the book who said, you know, it took her about three months to pluck up the courage to sort of, you know, cough <clears throat> to her manager and say, look, the way you're giving me instructions completely not working for me, right? Um, so I think what you can do as a manager is to start the conversation by surfacing your own preferences, but then use that as a way to, to understand other people's preferences and if necessary, tailor uh, those uh, to them. Another example, again, I've mentioned problem solving. Well, what do we mean by that? So let's say you want to do a, a, a strategic planning exercise with your team as a leader. Now, you probably have a preferred way of doing that, but so does everybody else. Now, not everybody is going to want to be a verbal thinker uh, at the whiteboard, you know, visual and, and, and sort of draw boxes on, on the board. That For me, that works quite well, but I know that doesn't work for everybody. So what you can do is you can say, look, here's how I like to problem solve. How do you want to contribute to this strategy? Do you want to share ideas ahead of time? Do you want to see the output of everybody else's thoughts and then spend some time working through that before you make a contribution? Same things with things like meetings and so on. You know, don't just assume that the way you like to do it or even what you perceive as sort of the norm is going to work for everybody. And I think if you start having those kinds of conversations, you give people a really sort of safe and productive space to say, actually, thank you, because my preference is, is, is really this. And if you allow me to work within the corridor of my preference, you know, you're going to get the best out of me. So as a final question and looking towards the future, I mean, there's an ever growing understanding of the way that the human brain works and the diversity of the, the human brain. And I suppose I'm thinking particularly of any parents who might be listening who have children who've been diagnosed as, as, as neurodiverse. What do you think the future of work will look like? How are things going to evolve over the next the next sort of decade or so? Yeah, also a great question. Also something I, I tried to tackle in the last chapter of, of, of the book, which, which really I think goes back to the importance of this in, in a context of disruption uh, and change and, of course, technology and, and AI and so on. Uh, 
I think it it should look like um, a growing appreciation of what humans, you know, diverse humans can do together and increased efforts to get the absolute maximum out of our human capital in order to sort of, to some extent, fend off the machines, but to some extent, optimize the machines um, as well. And I hope that everything we're seeing now, whether it's the appreciation of, of prevalence and the increased diagnostic rates, whether it's the amount of celebrities and, and voices, not just celebrities, but also you know, individuals talking about their neurodivergence in a, in a nuanced way that points out the strengths that they bring as well as any challenges uh, they faced. And the continued efforts of leading employers to say, this is something we value and we want to take seriously. I do hope that, you know, within the next five to 10 years, and we've seen enormous change in the last five or so, um, that this is something that becomes a lot more normal and somebody can go to an interview and disclose uh, with confidence and the folks that they disclose to are totally equipped to interview that person constructively, fairly and effectively um, in order to you know, give them the best chance to, to put their best foot forward. We've seen that. And I think the interesting thing when we talk about the future we at Optimize and, and, and I, with you know my role there and, and also writing the book, I think we've seen pretty much everything that needs to happen happen. It's just a question of you know uh, scale and, and really bringing this to the economy in a in a in a wider fashion. But we've seen teams face major challenges, for example, during COVID, and deliberately put highly neurodiverse teams together to meet them and then to see that have great results. You know. We, we've seen the impact of uh, on collaboration where people start to recognize the way that they think differently. We've seen the impact on recruitment and so on. So I think it's all there. And I think the change we'll see, I hope, is that it, this becomes a reality at scale and not just the, the privilege of the lucky few who work with organizations that get it. Ed, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Ed. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Recruiting Future Feast, and get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.